Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, let's uh, go around and introduce ourselves. My name is Jim. David. David. Justin. Adam. Um, my name is Harley. Mitch. Tom. My name is Mark. I'm Clint. Stephen. Jay. Gilbert. Can you touch one? Gary. I'm Mark. I'm Jack. Yes. Patrick. George. My name is Paige. Rosalia. Michael. I'm Richard. I'm Jerry. Steve. I'm Joe. I'm Brian. How many are here for the first time today? Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> um, and here comes Lady. We are very fortunate today to have uh, speakers from our own ranks, uh, David Lincoln and um, David Margolis. In this Dharma Duo program, our, um, our big, big idea is that within the Sangha is a lot of truth, and we want to we hear it. We don't just have to bring in teachers from outside all the time. So um, we've invited them to share their the truth of their story and uh, their encounter with Buddhism, and um, I'll let them introduce themselves. Both both Davids are longtime members of the Jinya, and uh, we're honored to have them today. So thank you. David has been so kind to let me go first, so um, I just want to welcome everyone and thank you for coming to support us. Um, I've been spending over a week trying to figure out what part of my story would be interesting or even you'd want to even listen to. Um, so finally, I condensed it to just these three pages. And um, even that is, you know, I think I'll just skim through it and be done in five minutes. Um, but I am very grateful. Thank you, Jim, for asking me twice to do this. So, um, I'm hoping that as I share my story that some things might resonate for you. And I'm also hoping that maybe it might motivate you to maybe get in touch with some of those inner dreams or some of those passions that kind of just fall away. I was uh, looking at the current narrative that I, I share with friends. And I was going, oh my gosh, this stupid narrative, it doesn't even serve me. you know. Who wants to hear about, you know, I'm one of eight kids and, you know, I had to learn how to adapt and, and all this other um, stuff, you know, drama, because we all have it. And it's, so then I tried to narrow it down to what would be most, what would be like the major landmarks in my life and, um, or lessons that I've learned. And I kind of narrowed it down to just three. Uh, the first is an event that happened with my mother when I was nine. Uh, the second is coming out, and there are two aspects of coming out. 
And the third is just, what am I doing in my life today? I think that's what's more applicable. You know, we can always figure out where we've come from, but to really know where we're at and maybe what our intentions are for the next six months or even the next day. I can remember when I was 10, or nine, that is, my mother, um, I was kind of goofing around with, I don't know if you all remember this, but Kenner's erector set, it was like the mother of Legos. And so here I am playing, and I'm really getting into doing all this architectural design stuff. And um, my mother came up to me, and she said, David, good sons remain quiet and only speak when spoken to. And I've kind of hung on to that, and I thought, you know what? That's a really crummy thing to hang on to. Uh, you know, it's like, there is a lion in here. There is something that wants to roar out and, and maybe be of service or of helping other people. And the second, the second item was, I mentioned was coming out. Um, I'm just curious, um, how many of you out there, a show of hands, came out in their 20s, as far as their sexuality? Keep your hands up. How about in your 30s or 40s? And so, and how about recently, within the past 10 years? Okay, so we have no youngsters here, I guess. So, um, I can remember coming out to my mother. I can remember just the feelings. Um, again, not feeling acknowledged, just this kind of blank look on her face. And I can remember this huge knot that got even tighter in my heart. But on the other side, all oh, this huge weight off my shoulders just kind of went away because I was being authentic. I was speaking my truth. I wasn't pretending. It takes so much energy to pretend. And, and the third item of coming out, or the second item of coming out, is I'm coming out with my current illness that I have. Many people have cancer, or they cope with cancer, or they cope with diabetes. Why well, cope with mental illness? And, and there's such a huge stigma in our society, even today, um, if people should share that, you know, I experience major, major depressions. In fact, I've had one all the way up until this morning, and the way it, it debil debilitates me and, and just keeps me so stuck. And then there's this other aspect of my mental illness where I kind of have these huge mood swings. I can go from, like most folks, I bet you all of you here, you're kind of like this, like just a gentle wave. Well, me, I, I go up really fast, I'm way up here, you're only down here, so I'm having a good time. And then maybe it only lasts like three or four days, and then I drop, and I stay lower than you've ever been for weeks on end. And that's where I become just immobile, I withdraw, I disappear, I flake, I can't return calls. But thank goodness a lot of my long-term friends they know me and accept that in me, that, not to take it personally, that I'm just doing the best I can. 
And so I just wanted to go a little more into um, some of the things that I experience when I'm in these kind of deep throes of depression. Because when I'm way up here, this is kind of cool. You know, I get things done, things are fun, the sky is blue, bright blue, in fact. Everything feels really euphoric. But when I'm really <coughs> struggling with, uh, Winston Churchill liked to call it, um, he suffered from depressions. Uh, he used to call it his, the black dog. The black dog is coming. Well, I think for me, I'd like to name it dark clouds. And boy, when those dark clouds come, I just like, I hunker in and I'm just so into myself and I'm just having a really difficult time. But what, what I've been able to do in the past, most recent past, is I've been able to develop a support network of really good friends that I can really be honest with and share what's going on with me. Um, I've never been a groupie, but I got into a support group, and um, I've noticed that I get so much energy and support from, uh, from the fellow participants. I'm actually co-facilitating a peer support group, and uh, it's really cool because I'm kind of giving back to um, a lot of my buddies that have been so kind to me. So as far as um, my spiritual practice, I don't like to admit it, but I've heard and I've read in many different uh, pieces of literature that th those dark clouds or that buddy that I know so well, that if I could embrace it, you know, if I could look upon it as a gift, and what I'm meaning by that is that just like um, with the Four Noble Truths, you know, like, I know that I suffer, and I, I can feel it, and, and I've really dabbled into what is the root cause. But the Third and Fourth Noble Truth, those, you know, have just, I struggle with that, in the sense that I would like to think that there's an end to this depressive suffering that I go through. And, and I know some of the tools, but as I, I come into recovery, I do these relapses and I go back and forth, and I just finally realized that this is very much a lifelong disease that I get to play with. And the gift is that I get a chance to really slow down there's this really cool little vignette that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh brings up in his book, The Heart of the Buddha's Teachings. And he discusses this little story about there's this one guy, and he's galloping on this horse really fast, just real fast. And so this other gentleman along the road goes, hey, why, why are you going so fast? Where are you going? And the man on the horse says, Ask the horse. And, and it's like, it, it's, it's so true. I am galloping on that horse. I'm pulled by that energy to accomplish, to be better, to um, just to always like measure up, be accepted, and not be rejected. And you know, that's all gobbledygook in, in the sense that 
when the dark clouds come for me, wow, I get an opportunity to just stay with this energy of looking at the root causes of why I feel the way I feel. And I get an opportunity to kind of just be with those feelings. And hopefully, well, I know I, it, they usually pass, and I come out again kind of more vibrant, almost like uh, a butterfly with even brighter wings. Part of my spiritual practice has, uh, has also been more of non-cushion. I, um, I can get really into doing really simple tasks mindfully. Uh, one of my favorites, although one of my roommates does a lot of it for me, is I really get into washing dishes. There's something cathartic about the soapy water and feeling the dishes when they're smooth and all that grime and stuff has fallen off the plate and just this sense of renewal. Um, some of my other non-Christian sort of uh, uh, mindfulness is I'd really like to get into slower eating and mindful eating, but usually I'm either on my, my smartphone or I'm watching a DVD and it's like, gosh, can't I just like enjoy the meal and, and reflect on where all this food came from and how blessed I am to, to be born, to have been born in San Francisco and to live among all this abundance and all this supportive, loving friends. So I think um, I would like to really learn to embrace my dark clouds and um, kind of investigate more as to those things that can help me uh, get through those periods and maybe stay away from things that just don't make me happy. You know, going to a lot of family functions. They don't even know me. You know, they don't know about the first time I came out of the closet, and they don't know about me coming out of this closet right now. And um, so anyway, I think for me, it's just been really wonderful that in the past few years, I've been able to develop this support network, and I've been able to figure out ways to um, help me get through those dark times. Um, so I'm just really grateful that I got this opportunity to share. And um, yeah, I think that's all I have. Thank you. So um, my name's David, and I decided to do the long version of my life, so I hope none of you have plans this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was going to start off with a joke about my travels to uh, India and being ordained in 1978, but, um, and my friends uh, calling me Baba Ram David, but too many people know you here, so I'll have to tell the true story. <laughs> um, actually, it starts in uh, Long Island, and that's island with a G in front of it, Long <laughs> Island. One thing I realized is no matter how you say it, the, the other person says Long Island, you know? 
Um, but I grew up in uh, suburban New York, in a, a town about 20 miles from Manhattan. Um, I guess at the end of the war, all sorts of groups left New York and moved into Long Island, and they created towns. I lived in one of those uh, Jewish towns that was about 70% Jewish. You know, all my friends were, were Jewish. I don't think I knew anybody who wasn't Jewish, maybe just like from school. And um, it, was a, it was a liberal town. It was a town that stressed education. It was also, uh, there was a lot of anti-war activity um, in my town. It was also a town that was known for the availability of getting easy, easy drugs. Um, <laughs> we would go to school and we had bomb threats and I think it was even a legal absence to be out of school for to protest the war. So it was a very liberal place, kind of, kind of Marin-like maybe. Um, I went to one of those like uh, mega temples in, um, in, I don't know if you guys know much about Judaism, but there's different branches and Reform Judaism is the most liberal, kind of, kind of like Unitarians in the sense. Um, and my temple had maybe um, a thousand families or not more. Sometimes we'd have two different seatings during the, uh, the major holidays. Um, my, my family went to services just a couple of times a year, maybe a Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in September. I was bar mitzvahed. Um, my parents worked in a lot of uh, Jewish organizations. And I wanted to read you this from the... Uh, the internet that's describing the, uh, the temple. Temple Sinai is an inclusive reform congregation that offers a warm welcome and nurturing home to all who seek a meaningful and enduring connection to Judaism. We welcome Jews from all backgrounds, striving to serve the needs of families and singles, Jews of all races, <clears throat> cultures, and sexual orientations, as well as Jews by choice and interfaith families. So, pretty liberal place, you know, not, you know, I, I sometimes talk to my Catholic friends and they have this, this um, uh, kind of anger about the church, but my, you know, my, the temple was pretty open, I didn't have any particular uh, feeling about it. Um, I went to Sunday school and Hebrew school, and Sunday school was about learning about the religion, and Hebrew school was about learning about Hebrew. Um, but, you know, all the kids that I knew were going to some type of school related to Judaism, so it just felt like school. I didn't really have any particular attachment to it. Um, I guess I thought God was uh, like a grandfather figure, a paternal figure that um, was benevolent and looked after me. Um, Kind of, look, kind of like an old man with a beard. I don't know if I could tell the difference between Moses and God if a picture was shown to me. But that's what I thought as a, as a kid. Um, I had this, this prayer I used to say as a kid. Um, and um, I was blessing my, my cousins that I was close with. And it went something like this. And I said it very fast because I didn't want to take more than a few minutes before I went to sleep. But... God bless Alice, Al, Paul, Mark, Eva, Andy, Mommy, Daddy, Gary, and Diane. Bless all the good people. Bless all the good people and make all the pe bad people good and then bless them. <laughs> so, so I was kind of doing a little meta even back then, but, but they, had to be good, they had to be good first. Um, um, you know, in my high school years, um, I didn't really have any powerful connection to Judaism. Um, 
as I got older, I started to believe kind of that religion and the Bible was a lot of stories with messages. Um, and they came from a particular time and culture, but they weren't so relevant for me. You know, it was the Vietnam War, and I was pretty anti-establishment and skeptical of, of most institutions. And I was thinking about my parents and thinking, well, was religion important to them? And I realized they really had two different takes on it. My mother, I used to see light can there's a lot of lighting of candles in the Jewish religion, but she used to light candles and say the prayer, and I could see tears in her eyes. And so I think she had a very personal relationship with God and Judaism. My dad seemed to think religion was good because it, um, it emphasized the family and good values. I think it was important to him. In the 70s, I went to a large state university in up, upstate New York. I was kind of a long-haired, hippie type that took drugs and got good grades. Um, <laughs> I wasn't willing to give the grades and the achievement up, but I, you know, I did wear ripped clothes and have just crazy, crazy hair. Um, you know, at that time, some of the folks, anti-establishment folks, were getting involved in Eastern thought, and I think for me, it just seemed cool and, and interesting back in college. Um, the first book I came upon, and I don't know whether I came upon it or somebody in school gave it to me, was. Uh, uh, Baba Ram Dass, uh, Be Here Now. I don't know how many guys remember that, but that was my book. I would read it all the time. I thought it was the coolest book in the world. And then I would read, um, I'd read all his other books. Um, and also at that time, um, I started meditating and I was taking LSD. Um, I took a college course called Other Ways of Knowing, and it was a philosophy course. And on one level, the instructor was just a philosophy professor, and on another level, he was kind of like an Eastern teacher, so you could kind of go to him after class and talk to him about your path and your meditating. And one time I brought up about homosexuality. I had just come out like a year earlier, and he said something about it being, I, and I, I, I couldn't quote him, but I remember him using the word feminine. And I had this really bad reaction to it, and it caused me to kind of go in the closet for a little while. It just, I had a bad reaction to it. Not that women aren't great, but I, I didn't like hearing that. Um, so after graduate school, I had my first, I mean, after, uh, after I graduated, I had my first uh, boyfriend experience. And um, it seemed like my attraction to Eastern thought just kind of went away. I, I don't really know why that is, but. It seemed like I just started spending a lot of time on, went back to graduate, went to graduate school, just achievement and career, and being gay, going to clubs, having fun, drinking, taking drugs, um, you know, I don't know what happened. <clears throat> and then it was like that way for a long time, until about 10 years ago. And it, it, was, a, it was a time in my life 10 years ago when, when they say bad things happen in three, but I found out I had a serious illness um, that required a very difficult treatment. Um, my mother had this massive stroke. She's still alive today, so this is 17 years ago. This massive stroke that she never got better from. And my sister calls me up telling me uh, she's, her husband is uh, splitting with her and she's got uh, 
two young kids. And so I was kind of beside myself. Um, and so I was, I was really stressed out and, um, you know, thinking I kind of need some, I had some time, I had time too because I wasn't working. So I was thinking, um, let me start looking into spirituality and religion again for some maybe support, um, who knows. And so I started going to the various churches and temples. I went to a Lutheran church and a, a MCC, and I went to the gay synagogue. And, um, you know, it was all really nice. People were really nice and supportive, and that was great. Um, but when I read the words and the prayers and the books, it didn't resonate with me. It wasn't my view of the way things were. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, you know, the things that didn't resonate me with me were a God separate from man, a God that was personified and male, a God that you praise um, and fear. You know, I spoke to the Unitarians and they said, "Oh, don't worry about it. All of us have different ideas about God. You don't even have to believe believe in it." And and. I, but you know, still the songs and the prayers and the books didn't didn't feel right to me. Um, and just a little joke here: um, the uh, Christian music is very pretty, but Jewish music is easier to dance to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, I've always had kind of strong religion, strong views about religion. Um, I've always been kind of skeptical about it. I I thought religion was a way to control people or keep people in power, or reflect the perspective of the people who put the religion together, and that the people that put the religion together were only a reflection of their time and their circumstances and their motivations and intentions. I thought religion capitalized on the universal need to want to be part of something bigger than the everyday and fears around death. I do think, I do however think that all religions provide a useful function of support and community to people when used in a skillful way. And I think there are people in every religion that are wise and kind and have good intentions. So why Buddhism? Um, it's not like I stopped and said, okay, let me examine and read up on all the religions of the world and pick one. Um, Buddhism resonated for me because I had some experience with Buddhism in, in college, as I, as I told you. Um, it was already organized here. Um, there were gay groups, which, which was good to me. It's, it was non-theistic. And it seemed to me to be almost a psychology or a philosophy rather than a religion. Um, I certainly wanted some relief from suffering and dissatisfaction. And my attempts to change all the external circumstances to make myself happy, or at least less stressed, it wasn't working for me. And here's another joke. It reminds me of the joke, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him about your plans. <laughs> Often things don't go the way you want them to go. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my practice and my philosophy around Buddhism. I joke, and I go to other groups other than this, and I joke that my school of Buddhism is a don't-make-things-worse school of Buddhism. And what I mean by that is I work a lot on the second arrow. I don't know if you guys know about the first. The first arrow is kind of, you know, something happens that's a big loss that you don't want to happen. Um, and then the second arrow is how we make things worse by um, 
catastrophizing, personalizing, generalizing, ruminating. We just kind of go on and on, and then we're in the, in the uh, abyss. So I work on the second arrow um, a lot. Um, so what I do during the day is I do a, uh, a check-in. Um, and I, I do a particularly a check-in when I'm feeling bad and, and I notice. And so I say to myself, what, what is going on? What is going on with me? Um, what emotion am I experiencing? What thoughts are going through my head? Am I in the present, in the now, right here? Or am I, I thinking about the past? Or am I projecting into an unknown future? Are my thoughts about disappointment or regret about the past? Self-doubt that's a little more present-oriented? Or fears and anxiety about the future? Am I just disturbed about a person who didn't act the way I wanted them to act? Or a situation that didn't go the way I wanted it to go? Then I take a look at how I make things worse. Um, a concept that resonates with me is called the don't know mind. And the don't know mind is telling you to be careful about all the assumptions you make in any given situation. How many times have you had a disagreement with someone you really knew, a partner, a friend, a family member, and when you really talked it out, found out that some of your assumptions about their motivations and intentions behind the behavior you didn't like were wrong. So my question to you is, how, how can we be so sure we know what's going on behind actions of people who really don't know? Bad drivers we don't like, people <coughs> that do things we don't like, these are strangers and people we hardly, we hardly know, so um, we tend to make a lot of, a lot of assumptions about people's intentions. Um, I try to assume I, I don't know why people act the way they do. So the breath, the, the breath is really important. And sometimes you're, so, you're spinning so much that all you can see is just you're in a, in a really bad state. But you always, you, you always have the breath. And surprisingly, if you can catch yourself and take a few deep breaths, it creates a little space around the rumination, around the disturbing emotion. Um, and, and it can also help you be clearer about how to act when you're feeling that way. Um, there's a little bit of a shift of perspective that I've, that I've had recently. Normally when things aren't going right and there are things we're upset about, we, also, we often blame the things. It's, uh, it's the fight I had with the boyfriend, it's the, uh, the stock market, it's the um, um, finances, um, whatever. Um, so my, my shift in perspective of saying, yes, these, these are problems, but I need to give more weight <clears throat> to my reaction to the problems, to the worry, to the anxiety, to whatever disturbing emotion it is. Because as you know about life, there's always going to be things to take that need to be handled, that don't go the way you want them to go, people that don't act the way you want them to go, but the anxiety and the other difficult emotions and thoughts make it worse and add to your suffering. It's not so easy to, to stop, but if you kind of do a little shift, you can say, wow, I need to work on these disturbing emotions. I'm never gonna fix everything out there to be the way I want them to be. So when you're in these disturbing emotions, it keeps us from being in the present and having the joy and equanimity 
we deserve. You know, another thing that seems to help me, um, and as you can see, this is a very practical form of Buddhism. I use it for kind of every day when things are happening. I call it a solidity and impermanence. And that is, when you're in a bad state of mind, it's not as solid as you think. There's, there's even, it even waxes and wanes a little bit. It may be a little bit different in a few hours. It may be different if you go, go for a little walk. And also things, this is impermanence, that things change or disappear. Sometimes you're caught in the middle of a difficult situation or emotion, and it's hard to believe, but it is going to change and, and go away. Um, one thing I struggle with Buddhism is, you know, often something happens and you can see your reaction to it, having a, a disturbing reaction. But there's also the, the prism which we look at everything in, in, in life. And a lot of that, I believe, comes from when you were a childhood and these personality traits that you develop. And I'm not sure in Buddhism, and, and it affects every interaction you have. Sometimes you're not even aware of the way it's almost in your unconscious. You don't even see about your, how it affects everything you do in life. But I really haven't seen in Buddhism, at least that I can understand, uh, a great way to kind of handle the deeper emotional things that come from your, your childhood. You know, I've always been skeptical and doubting. I don't take what anybody says for granted. It's like somebody arguing about foreign policy. I say, get Hillary Clinton over here to, to talk about it, and I'll, maybe I'll believe her, but I'm not going to believe you. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm just that, that way. I mean, I think people have a lot of opinions and don't really know a lot. But um, I, <laughs> I've always had a lot of doubt and skepticism. And, and even in my Buddhist groups that I go to, I ask uh, a lot of questions. And, um, and one thing that's great about Buddhism, they say, take what works for you and discard the rest. It's like you really don't have to believe in anything. You can try things and see how it works. And that's what I do. And it's a, an aspect of Buddhism that, that I like. You know, meditation, I mean, it seems like wherever you go, you, you meditate like it's like it's the, some gigantic part of uh, Buddhism. And, it, and it's, to be honest, it's really not my thing. Um, I actually go to three different groups where I meditate a half hour, so in case I'm wrong about it, at least I'm doing it three times a week. But, uh, you know, they say meditate, you know, I can meditate and reach, you know, a few moments of equanimity before my mind starts to go again. But if, the idea isn't that meditation is a thing by itself. It's actually something that is supposed to train the mind to allow you to handle situations in everyday life, not when you're meditating, to be able to quiet the mind, to be able to not be so reactive. So my thought is, why not combine it with Western psychology a little bit and look at the things that um, um, really bother you, uh, really get in. In the West, we call it things that get your goat in Eastern psychology attachments. Why not visualize, role play, and then um, start using some of the Buddhist techniques and I guess cognitive psychology techniques. So if you're driving, if you're ha having a, if you have fights with coworkers, why not put yourself in the situation and practice with the breath then, getting back to the breath, practice with the reactive, reactive mind. 
and that way I think it would, would generalize better. Um, you know, reincarnation and enlightenment is something I, I, I struggle with um, and I have a lot of doubts about it. You know, I'm not, I'm not very concerned about what happens to me after death. It really doesn't matter. I, there's part of me that thinks when the heart stops and the brain dies, that's the end of, end of suffering. You know, but um, I don't think about it that much. Um, what's important to me is to have more equanimity and joy right now and be able to roll with the punches better. Um, in Buddhism, there's a philosophical perspective that says a perfect act is one that reduces your suffering and the suffering of the world. And, and I like that. I think about that, and it sounds good to me. And so when I'm having a tendency to be selfish or act out of fear or anger, I think about that. You know, how is this going to affect my suffering? How is it going to affect the suffering of the person I'm, I'm interacting with or the world? You know, one of the speakers here uh, said one time, one of the most important things is knowing what is important. And that's one reason why I enjoy the Sangha and some of my other groups, because I think we talk about things that are important. Um, I've had people say to me, they said, God, with all that Buddhist practice you do, you would think you would be less neurotic. <laughs> and my Woody Allen response is, you should have seen me before. <laughs> anyway, we're all on different journeys and different places in our journey. And often you just start where you are, knowing that the journey can be bumpy and messy. And I want to end with just reading a couple of paragraphs from a book I'm reading in my Buddhist book club um, called Norman Fisher's Training in Compassion. And it's, it's similar to kind of how I use Buddhism. The best teacher of all is oneself. It's necessary that you be good and, in, and an intelligent teacher for yourself that you have the capacity to talk to yourself reasonably and for the occasion, so that when you are tied up in knots and your mind is raging and you are discouraged and troubled, you have the capacity to stop and think about your situation carefully. You can ask yourself, is this raging doing me any good? Is this complaining and hollering and bemoaning my fate helping the situation? Am I enjoying this? The answer to all these questions is probably no. Then having answered, you can assess the situation. Okay, this is what is going on now. A, B, C, and D inside. And A, B, C, and D outside. Can I change the external circumstances? And when the answer is yes, I can, then do that. Change the troublesome conditions. Stop all the chatter in the mind and figure out what you can change and go ahead and change it. When the answer is no, these circumstances cannot be changed, the question then becomes, what can you change? You can change your heart, you can change your mind, you can change your attitude. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, are you open to some questions or comments? Sure. sure, sure. <coughs> thank you both so much for, for sharing.
sharing such intimate and personal things. Thank you. Uh, David, I would like to ask you, I know uh, we've chatted uh, many times, uh, and sometimes you've shared a little bit about your travels to Asia and Laos and Thailand and places like that, and whenever you talked about it, you were just so happy and so thrilled that I uh, would like to, if you could share some of, not just your experiences there, but how traveling in those countries, which are Buddhist countries, how that touches your heart and how you brought it back and just that joy that you always seem to have uh, experienced there. You're totally right, um, mm -hmm. especially um, the countries in Southeast Asia. Um, I've spent uh, some time in Laos, as you know, and also Thailand. And um, I find that when I'm in that culture, especially in the Thai culture, uh, Buddhism is so ingrained in their culture. I think um, if you were to do a survey, maybe 95% of all the Thais are Buddhist. And so they just seem to be more Buddha-like. You know, they're more gentle, they're more kind in their, in their speech. This is just what I see, but I've seen the other end of it too. But I believe that we in the West can learn a lot from just traveling anywhere. You know, if we can keep ourselves open to, to the experience and not get caught up on, well, why don't they speak English? Or, um, ooh, I don't want to eat that food or whatever. You know, um, it's just so exciting. And I know you travel a lot, Harley. And I know when you get back, you're even more excited than I am. <laughs> <laughs> they talk about um, the travel <clears throat> mind. And you notice how, like, when you're traveling... You're really in the present. You're noticing buildings and, and people. You're less in your in your head. It's interesting too. The other thing is you can kind of reinvent yourself too. You know, Madonna does it all the time. So I mean, you can be wherever you want. You know, I can go there and go. Oh yeah, I've got this penthouse in San Francisco. You know? I usually don't do that because I forget what I tell them and then I get caught up. In it. So um, traveling's great. It's great. Harley, take me along on your next trip. <laughs> Joe, I have a question for David Margolis. Can you talk a little bit about your Buddhist book club? I, I had never heard of it. Oh, oh. Is this a new version? Yeah, this is, this is um, yeah, um, I'm trying to think how, how, is it still Gay Buddhist Sangha that does it? Or? That's how it originated. That's how it originated. There is no Sangha anymore, That's right? So, it's it, it's a it's a Yahoo group. It's called Dharma Study Group. It takes place uh, in the Castro on Thursday night at a guy's house, Jim Shalcom, who's really, really just a really beautiful person. You know, he's just opens up his home, and we have little snacks in the beginning, and then there's about ten guys, and, and we read a book. In fact, we were just reading this one tonight that I uh, quoted from. We're starting another book in two weeks, so if you want to join, it's, it's uh, um, I think you got to go out to the Yahoo group, and then Jim gives you the address, but we, we get together and we just kind of pick a, a book. And what's nice is a lot of guys have been in the group for a while, so we not only read a chapter and talk about a chapter, we apply it to our, our lives and talk about our personal lives, so 
so you get to know each other and it's it's very nice so Thursday night at seven o'clock kind of starts uh, a little social seven thirty we start with a half hour meditation and then we spend an hour talking about a, a chapter in the Castro thank you for listening to the gay Buddhist forum if you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live please subscribe to this podcast like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.